Sunday. We're in John chapter 1, uh, verses 35 through 51, and I want to talk to you this morning about being a finder, all right? Let me ask you, have you ever been lost? Not spiritually, but uh, geographically, <laughs> maybe. Um, I've been lost quite a few times um, in, my, in my driving days. Um, I've experienced, you know, being, especially before the, uh, the wonderful world of GPS, which is great for me because I use it even going places I go all the time now because I'm just very prone to that. And apparently, uh, my six-year-old's already caught up on that because whenever he's with me, he's always asking questions like, are we lost? Uh, this doesn't look familiar. You know, I'm like, you're six, you know? Um, but I think he got a little scarred this summer when we were on vacation, the place we were staying there, uh, as you came outside, there were two levels to it, and uh, as you walked out towards the beach, and it, there was, you, you, you had to come on one of the two levels uh, to, to get outside, and so there was an elevator to go down to the beach, and, and Cannon, our six-year-old, decided he would do what six-year-old do, and he would run on ahead, and he would be, you know, the first one to the elevator, because why? Why, do, why does a six-year-old want to be the first one to the elevator? To push the button, right? That's the greatest thing you can do in an elevator. So he gets to the elevator and he pushes the button, but he decides to go ahead and get in the elevator. And so before we can get to the elevator, of course, the elevator closes and the elevator opens in a brand new world uh, that was actually only one floor down and we're outside so he could hear our voices and things like that. But he's not thinking about that. We're 50 yards away from him and he's in a whole new world and with a whole new family. And... Uh, he freaked out, right? And you can hear the blood-curdling screams, and uh, he sticks a lot closer now and is apparently very paranoid about being lost. But I heard somebody say here uh, recently, you know the one thing worse than being lost? Being lost and nobody's looking for you. That's the, worst, that's the one thing worse than being lost, and it's especially true when it comes spiritually. You know, when you read the Scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, uh, every Christian you find is supposed to be in the business of finding lost people. We're to be finders. We are supposed to be looking for and finding people that need Jesus. And every church, every church, is supposed to be on a search and rescue mission. And so if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, at some point you were found, right? Sometimes we say, I found Jesus. That's not really the way it works. He ain't lost. Okay. He came looking for you. You got found, right? So he finds us, but he wasn't the only one looking for you. Somebody else was probably looking for you and praying for you and investing in you and inviting you and sharing the gospel with you. I don't know who this quote is original with, but I've probably used it before. It's well-known and well-worn, and I'm going to use it and build our whole message around it today, and that is this, found people find people. Now, that's the one Shane almost stole from me last week. Found people find people. It's all through the scriptures. It's, 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 the new it's a scriptural principle. Found people find people. Jesus said it this way. If you follow me, I will make you. I knew the church crowd knew that, right? We'll make you fishers of men. Because found people find people. And the passage we're going to look at today, John 1, verses 35 through 51, exhibit this truth. Found people find people. People. So we're going to read this passage, and I'm just going to show you three principles we need to apply if we're going to be finders, if we're going to be found people that find people. So look with me. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. John here is going to give us an incredible picture of sort of the evangelistic fervor that accompanied the first disciples. We'll see in this passage a chain of witnessing, if you will, a chain of evangelism, a chain of pointing people to Jesus um, that starts with John the Baptist and is carried on from his disciples and on, all right here in this narrative. So look with me, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35. It's on the screen for you um, if you don't have it on your device or in your Bible, verses 35 through 51. The next day... Again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, 
Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard uh, John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you... Excuse me, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All right, now what we see here in this narrative is the first... it's very clear, the first steps with Jesus of the early disciples, right? And those first steps begin with what? A first step. That's what first steps do, right? Uh, they begin their journey, and we see a progression here of people pointing people to Jesus. First, we see John pointing his own disciples to Jesus. Then Andrew, who was one of those two disciples, goes first to his brother Simon, Peter, and brings him to Jesus. Then in the next story, we see Jesus find Philip. Then Philip finds Nathaniel. It's all through. It's very clearly the theme of the passage. And what you see here is that when people believed in Jesus, the most natural thing for them to do was to tell other people and invite other people to meet Jesus. It was just natural. It wasn't worked up. They didn't need 12 steps. They didn't need a program, right? They didn't need, they didn't need to go through a class. They didn't need to learn how to do this, learn how to do that. It was just natural. It was conversational. It was relational. It was inviting a friend to meet a new friend. and That's all it was. And, and, and evangelism and sharing our faith and inviting people to Christ and even inviting people to church, those things are still supposed to be very natural normal, conversational things to do, and the only people who are usually weird about it are Christians. We make it weird. Your unchurched friends are not weird at all by the fact that you would talk about your faith as long as you don't make it weird in the way you do it, right? And they're not weird at all by you would invite them to church, especially if you're somebody that gives 45, 46, 47, 48, 49 a weeks a year to attending church, because nobody's here every Sunday, not even me. They don't think that's weird. They, 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 don't, 
We make it weird, right? We make it awkward. We've done that. If you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the Son of God, as Nathaniel proclaims here, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist proclaims, then there's nothing strange at all about telling other people about that or inviting other people to meet him. That would be a normal thing to do if the good news is, is actually good news, if it's true like we say it's true. In fact, to not share would be weird and would be unloving and would be quite cruel. Let me quote to you. You might have heard this quote before. It's made its rounds. This is from a famed magician. You might have heard of the magician duo Penn and Teller. Um, Famed magician and vowed atheist Penn Gillette uh, said this about personal evangelism. So this is coming from a, a famous atheist, okay? This is what he says. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or in our vernacular evangelize. I don't respect that at all, he says. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and to not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's not from an evangelist. That's not from some hellfire brimstone Baptist preacher. That's from an atheist. He doesn't understand why more people aren't telling him about Jesus, why more people aren't inviting him to church to hear the gospel. You know, the earliest followers of Jesus were very passionate about getting people to Jesus. We see it in this narrative, verse 41, Andrew finds Simon, verse 42. We see where after Jesus finds Philip in verse 45, Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. It's just a cycle that repeats itself and does throughout the New Testament. You see it all through Acts. This passage from John the Baptist to Andrew to Philip shows us the most loving thing that any Christ follower can do is to help someone else meet Jesus. Found people find people. It's why our mission statement is to help people trust, is helping people trust and follow Christ. That's what it's all about. That's the bottom line. That's the win. That's what we're all about. It's the primary way on earth we bring glory to God is by helping people trust and follow Christ, helping them along on their spiritual journey so that they come to know Christ and become more like Christ. So let's kind of look at this passage and find out how we can be finders, right? And not simply just keepers and hoarders of the gospels, but be the gospel, but people that go and find those who are far from God in our sphere of influence and help them come to know Jesus. Number one, you need to celebrate and communicate who Jesus is. That's the first principle we see at work here. You need to celebrate and communicate who Jesus is. It sounds simple. Sounds simple. Let's look at it. All through the narrative, you see Jesus' identity celebrated and communicated. First, we see it with John the Baptist. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. And you'll notice there in your Bible, it's with an exclamation mark. He says it with, with passion and enthusiasm. He says it with force, with exclamation or excitement, you might say. And remember, these are John the Baptist's disciples that he's sharing this with. As Jesus walks by, he, he declares. He doesn't simply explain. He, he declares Jesus is the Lamb of God. And then they leave John 
and go and begin to follow Jesus. And you might wonder, well, I wonder if John would be sad about that, right? No, John would go on a little bit later in and, and John, uh, John chapter 3, verse 30, and uh, John would record John the Baptist as saying this. When he's asked about Jesus gaining all these followers, he says, he must increase, he knows the rest of it, and I must decrease, right? I mean, that, that's, I mean, he knew he wasn't about building the kingdom of John, right? He was all about Jesus and celebrating Jesus, the Lamb of God. God. John understood something, that what the world needed most, it's not John. Uh, what the world needed most was Jesus. John didn't ex- simply explain who Jesus is. He, with excitement, is declaring it so that others will follow him because he's celebrating it. He's not whispering and shy about it. He he doesn't hope he doesn't offend somebody. He, it's just a joyful declaration. That's the Lamb of God who, in another passage, he says, takes away the sin of the world. And you can see the excitement with Andrew and Philip, right? They go and find people. Uh, they say this very simply, we have found the Messiah. Or in Philip's case, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. We've, we found him. They kind of say it with excitement. We, we, the Messiah, he's here. And you can sense their joy in the fact that they just had to tell somebody as soon as it had happened. You know, Jesus' identity, finding out and discovering who he was, was life-changing for these people. This is the person uh, that they had been waiting for for centuries. It was cause to celebrate, to tell people. This is the person that they had been waiting for. It had been passed down to them from great-grandparents to grandparents to their parents. I mean, they had just been hearing as they were waiting on the Messiah. Now he was here. And the way we celebrate is by sharing right? It's, just, it's, 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 it's natural. The way you celebrate something is by sharing it with others. It is the most natural form of celebration. Uh, you, you go on social media today, and a lot of times you'll see these gender reveals. Have you seen that? And it's, it's, they get, People really get into revealing uh, not just that they're having a kid, but they're having a boy or a girl. So they'll, I don't know, you know, they'll, they'll fill a balloon, you know, and shoot it with a bottle rocket, and it comes out blue. It's crazy stuff, and people are, like, getting hurt doing some of this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it gets real extreme, but they're just so wanting to celebrate to the point that before they even know, they want people to find out with them so they can celebrate, right? What do they do when they, when they, when they, when they find out that they're pregnant? As soon as they feel comfortable telling someone, they just got to tell somebody that they're having a baby because the most natural thing to do when you're joyous about something and celebrating something is to share something. See, and and good news is meant to be shared. See, they view this as good news. The fact that the Messiah was here, there there was no downside to this in their opinion. It was was only good news, right? And see, and and the the gospel is not bad news that you're a sinner. it's It's the solution to the bad news, right? The bad news is here. Whether there's a gospel or not, there's bad news. You get that, right? Whether Jesus comes and dies and rises again or not, the world's a broken place. Whether Jesus is who he says he is or not, there's still bad news in this world. So the gospel is not bad. The gospel is the good news, right? We get there's bad news. The world's a broken place, and we know more about that, that the the, the Bible says that it's caused by the fall, and we're sinners, right? And the reason many times we don't share the good news with the joy and celebration and the naturalness that it should is because I don't think we really believe the bad news, right? We don't really believe the bad news. We don't think people are as lost as the Bible says they are. We don't think hell is as real as the Bible says it is. We don't think that the world is broken as obviously that it is. Or we wouldn't, we, there's just no way that we could be so comfortable just slowly washing down the shore 
is our friends and family members never hear the gospel, never receive an invitation from our lips. Who are we praying for? Who are we inviting? Who are we sharing with? See, being found is only a big deal if you're lost. Good news is only good news if there's bad news on the reverse side of it. But when it's good news and you understand that it's in solution to the bad news and intention with the bad news and and culmination of, hey, here's the good news, you can't help but to share it in a celebratory way. Notice, though, that this isn't just some sort of, this isn't hollow, this isn't just some joyful, you know, big whoop of a time. They are clearly communicating very important truth about the identity of Jesus. Because see, it's only worth celebrating if there's actual truth there that's life-changing. And you'll see some titles for Jesus throughout this passage that they are celebrating that are very important. The first one is John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Now, when we think of that, we think of sacrificial lamb. But that may not have been what John was thinking of. Uh, John the Baptist, D.A. Carson points this out. He says, John the Baptist here may have been pointing to Jesus as the apocalyptic lamb that was spoken of in some Jewish writings at that time and that is mentioned later in the book of Revelation. In that sense, he would mean this is the lamb that is coming to judge the world and take sin away in judgment. However, the apostle John in writing this would see the irony of John's statement. His gospel presents Jesus as the Passover lamb sent to suffer and bear God's wrath for sinners so that they might be saved. And that's what we know, right? On this side of the cross and this side of an empty tomb and this side of the eyewitness account of John and we know more than John the Baptist knew. And, and, and we know that Jesus is the one who died in our place to take our sin and our shame and our guilt away. And we know that's something to celebrate and it's something that needs to clearly be communicated that Jesus is the Lamb of God that, yes, can take your sin away. And yes, by the way, if you don't meet him now in grace, you will meet him later in judgment. We, we, we understand all that. This is important truth to communicate. They also refer to Jesus by the title of Messiah or Christ. Or as it's said here in another way, him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. All just ways of referring to him as the anointed one, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, the chosen one, the one promised in the Old Testament that would come and deliver God's people. All the law and the prophets, Jesus would go on to say, are are about him, are summed up in him, the Messiah. And we see from Nathaniel, he's the son of God, proclaiming his deity as the second person of the Trinity. See, who Jesus is tells us a lot about what people need. The world needs saving, right? Sinners need forgiveness. Rebels need peace. Hearts need changing. So God sent Jesus, right? Uh, we, we need God. We need a Savior. We need forgiveness. So, so God sent the Messiah. And if we want to be people who reach people for Jesus, you need to first be someone who visibly and audibly celebrates and communicates who Jesus is around those you influence. We've got to get comfortable with that. We've got to get natural with that, talking about the Lord. Not just in a, hey, I got five points to share with you about, not just, hey, I got to share the peace with, steps to peace with God with you. Hey, I got the three circles I got to share with you. All those are great tools, but just in natural conversation, we got to talk about Jesus like he's a real person that they can really meet because he really is. Got to get natural with it. Number two, we've got to invite people to Christ and into community. You've got to be people that invite people to Christ and into community. All through this narrative, you see an evangelistic culture on display that is natural and not awkward. 
And if you have that celebratory news as we do, we know it should flow naturally. But we need to be a people, as you'll see them doing here, inviting people, inviting people to follow Jesus and on a journey with Jesus and with us and into our community to experience what Christ is doing in our lives and through our lives. You'll see three types of people these, these people were pointing to, to Jesus. First, you see, they, you see John's pointing people that he had influence with. And you've got people like that in your life, people you have influence. John the Baptist pointed his own disciples to Jesus. These were people who cared a great deal about what John thought. I mean, they're following John around. John's teaching them things. They, they, they look to John as an authoritative figure. That, he was an authority figure, a leader in their life. And, and everybody's got people like that, whether it's your kids or your grandkids or your nieces and nephews or people that work for you or whatever it may be. Um, it, it, people in the community, maybe if you're someone that, ha, that just you, you're involved in certain organizations and things like that, so you've got a little influence here. But we've all got people in our lives that we've got influence with. And John used his influence to urge people towards Jesus, even if it meant he had to decrease so that Jesus and his glory increases, right? He pushes those people towards Jesus that he had influence with. But we also see another category of people here, and that's the people that, that they're inviting that they loved. Andrew first went to his brother, right, to his own family. That's the first person he went to. I got to go tell my brother, and his brother would go on to become the apostle Peter. We don't talk a lot about Andrew. We talk a lot about Peter, but without an Andrew, there's no Peter, right? Without an eager brother going to tell his brother, I found the Messiah, right? I mean, he, God uses Andrew to get his brother to Jesus, and we all have family and close friends and people we love who need Jesus, people who are far from God or people who say they know God and maybe they have some sort of experience that they fall back on, but they're not connected to the local church and they're not walking with God right now in any meaningful way. And, and we love them when they're disconnected from the local church. Or they're maybe disconnected and far from God and we have this burden for them. We've got to use whatever influence we have with them because we love them to get them to Jesus because it's not us but Jesus who is what they need. And then you see the skeptics. Philip's friend Nathaniel gives us a picture of someone who is naturally skeptical, right? This got questions, nothing wrong with questions. What does he say? Does, he says, hey, we found Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah. And they would say names like that because it was indicating where the person was from. So Jesus' hometown here is Nazareth. And so they're saying, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And he asked the question, does anything good come from Nazareth? Isn't Jesus just a legend? Do people really rise from the dead? I mean, what is someone who died on a cross 2,000 years ago and who you say rose today, what does that mean for my life today? I mean, does the Bible really have any, hasn't science disproved the Bible? Has, I mean, people have questions, right? Does anything good come from Nazareth? In their day, that was just, that was just a, a poor town that you didn't brag about being from. It was nowheresville right? It was the town you graduated high school and you got as far away as quickly as you could because there was like two jobs in that town and you didn't want either one of them. Your dad had one of them, your uncle had the other one, and you're, you're trying to get out, right? You, want, you didn't want to be there. It was just a poor town. The Messiah also was supposed to come from Bethlehem, David's town. Now, we know that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, but Nathaniel didn't know that. Many people didn't know that yet. So it would fulfill the prophecy, and God so orchestrated Jesus' coming to earth in such a way to fulfill the prophecies and at the same time show us, man, that, that Jesus has come for the significant and the insignificant. Nazareth was insignificant and poor, and it wasn't the place of prophets and kings. In fact, they had a proverb in their day that no prophet came from Galilee. 
which was the area that Nazareth was in. I mean, it was just a proverbial dead place. So when Nathaniel says this, he's only saying out loud what a lot of other people were thinking. And that's what a lot of the skeptics in your life that you know and love, that you get nervous around because they've got all these questions, they're only saying out loud what a lot of your other friends are afraid to say to you. Okay? You, there's a lot of people thinking, does anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel just spoke. That's why Jesus, he doesn't disparage him. What does he say? Here comes a true Israelite. This guy speaks. He says what he's thinking. Right? There's no guile with this guy. He, he just speaks with honesty. And we all know people who say out loud what other people want. We know skeptics, people you think they may never believe. But you know what you do with a skeptic? Not that it's not important to answer questions that you can answer. Not that it's not important to put resources in hands. The most important thing you do with a skeptic is you invite, you pray, you invite. You just, you just try to get them in front of Jesus. See, those we love, those we have influence with, those who are skeptical, what they need most is not, in, is, is not simply all their questions answered. Not that that's not important. What they need most is an encounter with the living Christ. Both Andrew and Philip simply brought their friend and their family member to Jesus. Philip kept it simple with Nathaniel. He gives him this question that's actually loaded with theological meaning. Because he's implying the Messiah is going to be from Bethlehem. He, this skeptical question, he, just, he, he doesn't answer it with a long theological answer. He answers it with three words. Come and see. Right? <laughs> just come and see. Just, I, just, I, just, I, I challenge you to challenge Jesus. Right? Come and see. Come check him out. See what you think. You ask him questions. Listen, you can't answer every question. I can't answer every question, but we can arrange a meeting, and that's our goal, and that's our point. Get people around God's people where he's at work in and through people. Get people in front of God's word where they will hear the gospel, whether that's through you sharing with them and getting them in front of the preach word. That's all. We, we just arrange the meeting. That's all we do, and we pray, and that's all they were doing. We just arrange the meeting because that's how Christ will encounter people. It will be through the proclamation of his word by the power of his spirit. A common theme in this passage you see here is come and see. It's a simple invitation to come and explore and experience and find out more. To just see for yourself. It's an invitation on a journey. The first time it's offered is by who? By Jesus. Right? When John's disciples, hey, where are you staying? He says, just, come, just come hang out with me. Come on. John's disciples want to know. And Jesus is saying, just, just come hang out. In verse 43, the first finder we see. Is Jesus, right? Jesus goes and finds Philip before Philip finds the thing because the primary seeker is God. People don't really find Jesus as much as Jesus finds us. As someone said, he isn't lost, right? Jesus said he came to what? Seek and save that which is lost. The true finder, the ultimate seeker is Jesus. He, came, he said what? That the Father is seeking worshipers, right? So what did Jesus come to do? To transform idolatrous sinners like us into worshipers, right? The primary seeker is God. The primary seeker is Jesus. We see in this passage one of Jesus' great methods was an invitation to a journey, right? So that they could watch, listen, and observe. And we have to, as the church today, we have to embrace a come and see approach. 
We need to invite people to experience Jesus, to read his word, yes, and to research. But one of the great ways we invite people to come and see today is to invite them to come and experience Christian community. That's why what happens in this body or any local church body within the interactions of one another and the way we do ministry in the world and the way we interact with one another and the culture of this place and what goes on in this room and outside these rooms and all these other, that's why it's so important because the most, the, the primary way we have to invite people into this community and this journey for them to explore is by inviting them in it with us, right? On a journey with, with, with us. And so, we are supposed to, our community is supposed to display the reality of the living Christ. We're the body of Christ, not just the body. The body of Christ. Jesus is present and at work in and through the local church in a unique and special way beyond that of anywhere else on the planet. Jesus is present and at work in Sunday morning gatherings in local churches all over the world today in a unique and special way than anywhere else on the planet. If we didn't believe that, there'd be no reason to be here. He's at work in and through the lives of his people. And so one of the primary ways that we can help people on their spiritual journey is to get them around God's people because God's at work in the lives of his people and God uses his people to reach people. He, don't, he, don't, he ain't sending angels anymore. He's sending people. Right? I don't have scriptural evidence to tell you that, that your friend is going to have an experience with an angel that's going to get them to Jesus. But I can show you, I'm not saying, I just can't say. I mean, it's just, that's just not the pattern that we see of how God's working now since Acts, right? What do we see? He's using people. We're the primary means. Right? We're the primary means. He's, he's using us. And so we need to get people over. Let me ask you, this is a quick show of hands. How many of you that are Christians this morning were in church, a regular attender of a local church, when you became a Christian? Okay, keep your hand up. How many of you, when you became a Christian, it was through the influence of a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a family member? Oh, more hands went up. Hmm. They were Christians, I'm assuming? Okay. Uh, how many... There's not really any hands left, I don't think. I mean, do we have, how many people, so everybody else put their hands down. How many people in the room would say, I came to Christ and there wasn't a single person on the planet that had anything to do with it? Right, you're the person that, you know, you just, anybody like that? You didn't hear anybody preach? You know, somebody's gonna say, well, somebody might have just found somebody, a Bible, well, somebody translated that Bible and somebody, a Gideon probably placed that Bible. God uses me. People, and, and the primary, the vast majority of us were in and around the community of faith when we got saved. You get that? And so it's kind of like, people say, well, why would I invite them to church? They don't believe. You didn't believe, most of you didn't believe either when you were coming. <laughs> That's just the way it works. We invite them in so that they can come and see and experience and see God at work in the community of faith and see God at work in my life and in your life and in our lives. And then, yes, that's not enough. They have to hear the gospel. But the gospel, we need to be showing the validity and the reality of it through a transformed community. Not, and not just isolated people, but a community of faith. And so as a body of Christ, this should be a place where people can come listen, see, watch, a place they can encounter God, ask questions, hear the gospel, see the gospel's impact on the lives of others. Listen, your skeptical friends will not get to touch the nailed scarred hands of Jesus like Doubting Thomas did. 
But they will get to see Christ at work in and through you and his people. In fact, Jesus even said, I need to go away because it's going to be better for you that I go away and the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus actually said, greater things are you going to see when that happens. And the problem many times is we don't take Jesus at his word. That the Holy Spirit, active and at work in our lives personally and our life corporately, is a powerful thing that God can use to see people transform. So we don't, you know, we don't invite because we're afraid they won't like the music. We don't invite because we're afraid the preaching's too long. We don't invite because we don't know if they'll like the room. We don't, we, they live too far. We don't invite because maybe this isn't the style of church for them. Or we, don't invite, we have like a thousand reasons and they may, we've got our reasons, right? But none of them have to do with, well, is there a chance that the Holy Spirit of God is alive and at work and in his people and that that is a bigger deal than their preference for music or preaching or style or location or any of that other stuff that is peripheral stuff that's all going to just go away one day. Do we believe that, right? We've got to get back to the very basics, which is God's at work in my life. Come and see and sharing the gospel with people. And the third and final thing about being a finder is this. you got to trust Jesus with the results. We invite people to Christ, we invite them into the community, but we have to trust Jesus with the results. Both Andrew and Philip trusted Jesus with their person. They simply got them there, and, and Jesus takes over. Do you notice that? In, in, every, in both situations, Jesus just takes over. Even with John the Baptist, points them to Jesus. From there, Jesus takes over. And that's what we're to do. We share Jesus. We get them in front of the gospel as often as possible. We pray, and we just trust Jesus. And we must do this because only Jesus can do in their life what needs to be done. Only Jesus can change them. Only Jesus can connect them to God. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can save them. And here in this narrative, you, you see this. We, we must get them to Jesus and trust Jesus with them because, first, only Jesus can change them. We learn that from Simon Peter. Notice Jesus speaks to Simon and gives him a, a new nickname. He calls him Cephas or Peter. The word basically means rock. If you've read the Gospels, and I don't want to assume you have, if, if, you've read, if you read the Gospels and you read about Peter, the last thing you'll think is a good nickname for this guy's rock. You know, he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He rebukes Jesus at one point for saying he's going to go to the cross. He literally rebukes the Son of God. Um, and then he's most famous for denying Jesus three times in his most critical hour. Not very solid, right? Not the most solid guy. But then you see Jesus, excuse me, Peter post-Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, standing and preaching. 3,000 people get saved. You see him at leading this crazy charge all through Acts and just, man, Spirit of God moving and working in and through his life. And legend tells us, not the scriptures, but legend tells us, a lot of historical accounts tell us that he was crucified upside down as a martyr after watching his wife be crucified. Rock. Rock. Because see, Jesus looked at Peter, and when he says, you shall be called Peter, He's speaking with authority, not with an opinion. He ain't giving a nickname like me. I'm going to call you, you know. That's just me giving a silly nickname. When Jesus says it, he's saying, I'm going to transform your identity. Who you are is not who you will be. 
You will be radically changed because your identity will now be in me. And when you stand on the solid rock of me, you'll become like a rock. Your life is going to be radically changed. And only Jesus has the authority to challenge and change our very identity. He hides our identity in himself and makes us all more solid than we could have ever been before. And I don't know who your person is, but I know only Jesus and not us can bring deep, inner, lasting, forever change to their life. Because, secondly, we learn from Nathaniel, only Jesus can connect people to God. Peter tells Nathaniel in verse you know, uh, 51, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, commentators will tell you that the, the, the conversation with Nathaniel is, is all recounting, is all rec- it's very recalling um, Jacob. And so when he, when he looks at Nathaniel and he says, Behold a true Israelite, right? One who's without deceit, right? Well, what was Jacob known for? He was a what? A deceiver. Okay, he, he was a deceptive dude, right? And so he, he, he's speaking to the, the transformation that was promised all the way back then when God changes Jacob to Israel, right? His chosen one and his people come from him. And, and he's looking, he said, here's a true Israelite. Here's one who's, who's gonna be transformed, who truly believes this stuff, right? Who truly believes the promises, truly looking for the Messiah. Here's a true Israelite. Him there is no deceit. So he's recalling Jacob, who was called the deceiver, And then he's recalling here in verse 51, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is Jacob's great experience that's so famous, Jacob's ladder, right? Jacob's ladder where he has the vision when he's very fearful and he's in this very scary time and he has this vision where he sees an angel extended from heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And he he gives that place a name. You know, any Bible scholars remember the name of the place? We name a lot of churches that now. Bethel, Bethel, the other preacher got it, right? Bethel, it means house of God. And so Jacob names the house because he's, I met with God there. And what Jesus is saying here is this, <laughs> the better Bethel has arrived. I am the house of God. And if you want to meet with God, you meet with me. You want to know God, you get with me. You want to connect with God, you come through me. I am the one. I am the one that connects people to God. I am the house of God. And listen, that's what Christmas is all about, right? We're entering into this Advent season where we celebrate the first coming of Christ. It's all about God tabernacling with man. John chapter 1 is all about that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the people we know The change they need, only Jesus can bring, and only he can bring it because only he is God in the flesh who has come to connect people to God. Only he is the true and better Bethel. The one who is the true house of God. As we move towards Christmas season, and we remember that God tabernacled among us in Jesus, as John 1 tells us, And the only reason that I or you or anyone we know and love can be saved is because Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again in victory so that all who would turn away from their sin and believe on him can be saved. As we we remember that, as we celebrate that this Christmas season and think on that, as we enter into the season, the, the, the first question I have to ask each of us and I want you to ask yourself is, have I been found? Is, 
Who do I identify with in the passage? Do I identify with Nathaniel? Am I skeptical? You know what Jesus says? Come and see. Right? Do I, do I, do I identify with Peter? Am I in need of life change? Am, am I in need of someone to kind of transfer my, my identity? Am I kind of on shaky ground and I need to be placed on, on, on solid ground? Well, come and see. Or maybe it's Andrew and Philip. Maybe I'm someone who's following Jesus and there's people in my life that I need to find and as the scripture says, bring them, Right? Whether that's inviting them to local church so they hear the gospel and whether that's taking the gospel to them and sharing with them and inviting them into my life, right? Into my home and into my life so they can build a relationship with me. Whatever that means, maybe that's where you're at. Who do you identify with in the passage? Next Sunday is our friend day. Breakfast, 945, worship at 1045. We got cards in the back of the room that look like this. One card says family tree. It's got the, it's the invitation to our Christmas series that starts next week. On the back it says worship time and it's got the, uh, it's got the, um, the breakfast time on there if you want to invite them. It's just, it's just something for you to put in their hand as a reminder. If you walk out of the room today and you don't take any, I know you're not probably inviting anybody this week, so don't do that. Everybody should at least have one that we can grab and invite somebody with. Now the other card's really important. It's a random act of Christmas kindness card. This is a card that you can use, let's say, this Christmas season, you're in the drive through line at Chick-fil-A or Popeye's or uh, whoever makes your favorite chicken sandwich, right? And you're in the line and you can say, you know what, I'm going to pick up the tab of the guy behind me and would you mind just giving them this card when, when they come through? And it'll invite them to church and tell them why you did your act of kindness and all that sort of stuff. Just a couple of tools to put in your hand. But the most important thing is not the little things we printed on paper. The most important tool is just our own lives and our own voices. And do we have the gumption and the spiritual energy to invite and to pray and to ask and to say, meet me, I'll take you to lunch, meet me for breakfast, whatever works for you to get your people in this room next week. So number one, who do you identify with in the passage? Have you been found? Number two, who do you need to invite this week? Let's pray.